I'm Pat, and I'm an alcoholic. And before we start, let's invite God into this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, I want to get through a couple of house cleaning things so that we can get on with the speakers. Uh, first of all, uh, welcome to the 22nd year in a row that we've had this retreat. And uh, thank you. Um, and one of the things that we've learned through the years is that as sober men, we leave this facility better than what we find, found it. That we pick up stuff that isn't ours. That we take care of stuff that, that may not be what you dropped. And uh, consequently, we've always been welcome back to wherever we've been for the last 22 years. Uh, there's a couple things. There's cigarette bu buckets and cigar buckets that you make sure you police your cigarettes and get all that stuff in there. These guys have been really good about opening up uh, the facility to us. So it's, it's, real, it's a lot better than it was during the fire season. Um, the other thing is that there's a couple religious groups up here this weekend, and um, and what we need to do is respect them. So if they're around and we're talking, you know, sometimes we may sound like sailors or whatever, and we need to we need to be aware that these people are up here just like us, trying to find God, and uh, we just need to respect that. Um, after Don speaks, we're going to have a sign-ins sign-ins, and we'll have uh, name tags, and we'll hand out shirts. So uh, that'll be done in the back. Anything else? Am I forgetting anything? Oh, people, um, if you have a difficult time walking, uh, we don't mind if somebody's driving you. But if you are driving in this uh, facility, please slow down. We need to be careful. Uh, people are walking around, and they're not assuming that there's cars coming. So please uh, be aware of that. Um, if there's any problems that you guys are having, if you grab me or Dan uh, so that we just have one or two people that deal with the staff, it, it eliminates a lot of headaches for us. So uh, it is uh, my pleasure, and this, this happened about five years ago, and... Uh, and it's, it's, I've been waiting for this for five years for Don to, to lead this meeting and to be the retreat master. And, and without any further ado, Don R. I had a very hard time with the spiritual part of this program, an extremely hard time. And I was raised in a Catholic boarding school. And I'm not against Catholics. I'm not against Jews. I'm not against any religion that I know of. But what it is is that I was put in a boarding school when I was seven years old. And my mom and dad went to China. And I believed what I was learning in catechism. And I asked God for my mama. Now that sounds great, a cowboy sitting here talking. 
about his mama, you know. I asked God to bring me back my mama, and he didn't. I wasn't a sinner at that age. He didn't bring her back for five years. In that time, I got deathly ill. I nearly died from double pneumonia, but there was no mama. There were some caring nuns and some nuns that I don't care about. <clears throat> but there was no uh, parental relationship at all. And uh, I really grew distance from things. You know, a little kid in a boarding school, they have the big kids at the head of the table and the little kids at the end. Well, the little kid never sees any butter. He never sees any dessert because the big kids take it. And what can you do? You can fight, but it don't do any good. You get in trouble. And I remember that I had put my belt, you had to do everything by bells ringing. And I put my belt in the wrong locker. And when I went to get dressed the next day, I couldn't find my belt. So I said, somebody stole it. Well, it was found in the locker next to mine. And I got a spanking because of lying. And I was told what a bad guy I was, you know. And then I got this double pneumonia and I started wetting the bed. Nearly died six weeks in the hospital, nearly died. This was back in South Dakota where I, I spent some of my most joyful time when I would go out on, live on a farm for a while or something like that. And, and what took place was a self-interest that was so great that I would steal money in order to buy kids' candy. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to measure up. Now, fast forward to uh, 19... Any Korean War vets in here besides me? Oh, we're all dying. Yeah. Fast forward, my folks came back from China in uh, December of 1941. My dad left immediately. He was in the Navy, was gone for two years, <clears throat> then came back. But the war was still on, and he was involved in a teaching uh, school of sonar and didn't have any time. So I grew up on a, just about on my own, you know. And I ran with the wrong crowd because I changed schools frequently. And God, them good, good kids, they didn't welcome me. But the assholes sure gathered around me. And I loved them. They talked about exciting things. They burglarized this. They stole that. They did this. Wow. I don't know how many of you have been burglars or whatnot, but there's a certain amount of excitement to it. 
particularly when there's a little pop or something that you don't expect. You know, your head gets a good whiff, you know. So I was right in amongst that, and and I burglarized a safe on a naval base. It wasn't locked or I couldn't have sold anything. But the only thing in it were ID cards. So I, I uh, stole a box of uh, Navy ID cards that I could sell for uh, underage drinkers like myself, you know. And I eventually I got caught, but I didn't get caught for the stealing. I got caught for the selling. And I was told that, because uh, this cop knew me. And, uh, and uh, you know, when a cop knows you and he asks your name, you got a problem. <laughs> he's just verifying for the record that he's got the right guy, <laughs> you know, and so... But he said to me, he says, Don, he says, if you're not around, uh, this will die down. What I had done is I had sold an ID card to a kid that gave me up that got caught. And uh, so he said, this will die down if you're not around. Three days later, I was in the Navy. And I talk a lot about developing uh, how you develop in life, and I want to. I don't want to take a lot of time. Make uh, short as I can. I wound up being sent as a unit of intelligence to Korea of naval intelligence, and I was in this ten years in the navy. And I was always with an intelligence group, whether it was at the Pentagon or wherever I was. It was always with the intelligence group. Well, in Korea, we made a landing 17 days after the war started. Nobody even hardly knows about it. And we took the troops that were occupying Japan, and they occupied Japan in 1945, and they enjoyed the bounty of being the winner. And they were way out of shape and everything, and got slaughtered when we put them ashore. And so we fought down to Pusan. And Pusan, we had 26 miles left of Korea, and there was the ocean. You know, could have been another Dunkirk, but Fortunately, air power bought us some time, and, and and we were able to fight the way out of it. But in Pusan, I paid $20 for a pint of whiskey, 20 bucks. Now, military whiskey was $6 a fifth, but you had to have a peaceful area in order to get to it. But here's a kicker. That whiskey at $20, I bought a woman for 15 cents. <laughs> and it set my values. <laughs> so I never particularly worried about what whiskey cost. 
but I worried about the rest. Well, I fought this spiritual life quite hard. And uh, I've been to 20 of the, they said, Pat did say this is 22, didn't he? I've been to 20 of the retreats. I want to tell you something. I've had things happen in my sobriety. I got sober with Hugh Douglas as a sponsor, and I stayed sober because this is what he told me. You don't drink no matter what happens. You never set a condition on sobriety. The minute you set a condition on sobriety, when that condition is met, you'll drink. Rather it be the loss of a loved one, rather it be financial, no matter what it is. So I, I used to go to him and I would say, my wife is doing this and doing that. And he'd say, who picked her? <laughs> I'd say, I did. He said, well, it's your problem. Had nothing to do with sobriety. It had to do with relationships. See? And, and I went to him again and he says, because you hear the story about dumping out all the whiskey, you know, all the alcohol. My wife had a drink before dinner every night and I mixed it, you know. I go to Hugh and I say, the bitch won't quit drinking. <laughs> and he says, she an alcoholic? I said, no. He said, who's the alcoholic? I said, I am. He said, then don't you drink. And I got that real simple, uncomplicated look to yourself. Your problems are generally of your own making. How many times, even to this day, and it happened just the other day, I wanted something that I knew I put it someplace. I couldn't remember where. But I didn't look real good. And after I bought a replacement, guess what I found? You know, my problems are generally of my own making. And I, sh I share a lot about what Hugh Douglas said because it makes such good sense. Good common sense, uncomplicated. He says, you got to give everybody the same right you've taken. Well, that's a tough one. I lied, I've cheated, I've stole, I've you know, been impatient, been unreal. You know, been suspicious, all those things. So he says, why is it, Don, that we get irritated when the person driving in front of us is not driving fast enough? And yet when we go in a neighborhood that is not familiar to us, we slow up so we can see the friggin' address. But we got a good reason. He says, maybe so does that person have a good reason. You don't know. So don't judge them negatively. See? Now this, 
that staying sober has been easy for me. It's been easy for me because I was given a little pamphlet and in my big book I got a couple of them. They're not in AA anymore, but they used to be in AA 50 years ago in practically all the AA uh, meetings. It's called Why You Were Chosen or Why We Were Chosen, okay? It's a little pamphlet. It's not owned by AA because they wouldn't buy it. But <clears throat> Hazelton bought it, so. But me being a printer, I printed a lot of them. Just took the copyright off. <clears throat> but this is what it says, and whether you be an old timer or new, it says you've been given a very special gift. And that's true, because I can tell you how I identified with the guys that were sober and were sharing their story. You know, many of them didn't go as far down as I went, but they still had that. One of the, my favorite things that I talk about is, I only stopped for two drinks. That's one of my favorites because it's true. I really only stopped for two drinks. You know, I didn't understand the doctor's opinion for quite a few years, even after I was sober. And I beg you to read it very carefully and look for identification. Near the end of my drinking, I drank to get wasted to get drunk. But for years, I didn't. I tried. I was very successful in some areas. I was so successful in the Navy that I had eight commendations and eight court-martials and captain's mess <laughs> because my emotions just drove me crazy. For instance, one time when I was supposed to be back by 6 a.m., I'm sitting at the bar with a buddy and I'm drinking and drinking and drinking. And he says, come on, we got to get, we got just got time to get back. And my statement was, and I'm paying attention to what Patrick said about the words. Nobody's going to tell me when I got to be back. And I went AWOL. So nobody can, and I've had, in sobriety, I've had people say to my face, and I'm grateful they do. They say, you know, a trouble with Don R is you can't tell him much. <laughs> you know, and that's a character defect. You have to learn how to, I had to learn how to listen and to know that my story is my story. Yours doesn't have to be like it. And it's just as valuable as mine. Absolutely as valuable if it's honest. Or at least as much honesty as you can generate wherever you're at. You know. 
But anyway, I wound up at 34, 35, 33, 33 years old, I'm on antabuse. A printer friend of mine was, uh, we drank together. We'd pass out with presses running. And, uh, and I went over to his shop in need of a drink, and he says, and a drinking buddy. And he says, I'm not drinking anymore. I says, you're not? He says, no. He said, uh, I'm on this pill the doctor gives me, and I can't drink anymore. It's called Anabuse. I got the doctor's name, because I'm in a real trouble drinking. I got the doctor's name. I go see the doctor. He says, here's a prescription for Anabuse. Now, whatever you do, don't drink after you start taking these pills, because it could be fatal. And I made 13 days. And then being, I like the part in the book that says that alcoholics in general are of an intelligence group. You know, that's nice. Because <laughs> I was intelligent. And uh, I thought, well, if I drink fast enough, I can get drunk before I get sick, and then I won't give a shit. And that's what I did. And I damn near died. Heart beat so fast I thought it was going to come out of my chest. I continued drinking for two years. And I went to UCLA Neuropsychiatric Center for Alcoholics. I knew I was going nuts because my behavior was becoming horrible. I go up to the hardware store to get some hinges for a project at Holman, be gone four days and be in Mexico. One time, one time in New York City, I bought clothes, went to Westerly, Rhode Island, came to out of a blackout, and I was eating either clams or oysters, I can't remember which, at the Italian American Club, having a fine time. I had those kind of of episodes. So I, I went to UCLA Neuropsychiatric Center and I passed with colors. But there was one problem. They wanted me to stop drinking. And they were going to do it with me being under their control. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't give that up. So for two more years, or maybe a year and a half, I continued drinking. And my mother came out to Canoga Park to see uh, my wife and me and the kids, and I was missing again. And they went looking for me, and they couldn't find me. And so they were sitting on the porch, and we had a nice home, swimming pool and everything. and. Uh, my mother saw me walking down the street, pair of shorts, cowboy boots, straw hat. <laughs> and she turned to my wife and she said, he would be better off dead. That's a pretty powerful statement for a mother to make. 
and I didn't know about it until after I was sober quite a, quite a few years. Or I would have called her a bitch if I'd known about it, you know. But I do know that no matter how much I tried to lay the blame of being in that boarding school on her, she wouldn't get her checkbook out. No matter, I could cry, I could stomp, you know. I could say you don't love me. She would not get that checkbook out. And two years later, I got sober by walking into the Ella nest in Reseda and sitting down and somebody saying, do you have a problem with alcohol? Yes, I do. They gave me time. They shared with me their experience. And that's what I want to do about the topic tonight. The topic is constant thought of others. Absolutely a ridiculous topic to a bunch of alcoholics. Absolutely ridiculous. You know, I'll give you an example. As I got sober, I became responsible and I didn't have a wife, but I had kids. So I had birthday presents to buy and, and to honor their birthday. And then they had kids. Now there's a whole friggin' list of them. And they had kids. And I got nine, ten great-grandkids now to remember their, their uh, birthdays. I got uh, nine grandkids to remember their birthdays, plus my own three kids. But this is what I do because I'm learning on the program constant thought of others. On January, first week of January, I make out all the checks. I make out all the birthday cards, I put them all in the mail, and I think, thank God that shit's done. I'm sober 25 or 30 years, and my son says to me, says, Dad, could you wait until their birthday? That's too much, you know. But constant thought of others. They enjoy being recognized for their birthday. So now, in my 24-hour day book, I have all the birthdays and the addresses and everything. So I send at that. Now that's a little thing to most people. Most people just can't believe somebody is that lazy. Really. But that's done. That's the way it is. It's not the way I wish to be. But that's the way it is. And even Patrick, and I love Patrick, and he's been an inspiration to me in having this retreat. And since I had asked to be retreat master, when I heard they had a meeting, I volunteered. And he didn't pay any attention to me. Gave me a resentment, you know. But I, I tried again. 
and he didn't pay any attention. But I'm persistent. I tried again, and he says, Don, he says, you haven't been to a meeting since this started. <laughs> oh, what a resentment, you know. In fact, just this last week or so, I sat down with him and shared this, how he's helping me with my growth. <laughs> See? How I, can now, how I can now do what the book says when agitated, right? Pause and search for where I set the ball in motion, you know? I mean, that what I'm sharing with you and the reason that I wanted to be retreat master is because I want to tell you the times that people, you people, have eased my burden. I went to a men's stag when I was young in sobriety. And they said, does anybody have a problem? I said, yeah. They said, what is it? I said, my girls and the women in the house are using too much toilet paper. <laughs> you know? And they hoot and hollered and shut me down. I got a hell of a resentment. But since I have a commitment, nobody gets my seat in AA. I didn't leave. Had I left, I wouldn't have met the man that came up after the meeting and said, Don, what, how, when were you were born? I says, 1930. He says, when was your wife born? I chase young women. She was born 1956. He said, she doesn't know what the depression was like. He says, how much toilet paper you figure they waste in a year? And he named off several amounts, and I picked $50. And, you know, you go back 25 years, $50 is quite a bit of money. And he said, uh, are you going to stay upset all year over $50? Well, I figured I might. <laughs> I probably mentioned that again to him, you know. He said, how much money have you spent drinking? Man, that laid me back, thousands upon thousands of dollars. That laid me back. So there's a lesson, because I kept going to meetings, even when my ego was bruised, and I listened to the fellowship. The book says we must replace drinking with something. And I thought, here comes that spiritual shit again. And they said, with the fellowship. And that's what I have found to be true. So problem after problem that I've had in my sobriety and I have shared openly and honestly with friends or somebody that I thought might have an answer, I have gained tools, tools that allow me to calm my emotions. And with a bad heart, that helped too 
because you better keep them calm. So now I have, if I was to take a test right now, I would have probably an oxygen level of 92 and a pulse around 46 to 50. I got a little alarmed the other day because it went down to 36 and I thought, that's pretty low, you know. But what I'm saying is that it's you people. Now I'm going to go back to this gift you've been given. And this is very critical and takes a lot of self-examination, which is a learned process. It's not natural. It's a learned process. And I'll tell you how you learn it. You say, well, I feel this way. I think this way. And then you write, is that honest? Is that truthful? And what happens is that I got a real problem with being, with empathy. You know what empathy is, is being able to experience another person's feelings in like kind. And that's difficult. I'll share with you again that due to a fellowship, and that's why I talk about the fellowship, this constant thought of others grows on you, and as the years go by, it becomes less difficult. You start losing that self-interest of being more successful or being this or being that, and you get more joy out of seeing somebody else gain something. Even if it's just from conversation, they don't drink at that time. Because drinking for us is death, you know. So this is where I'm at with it. And the big book talks about love and tolerance is our code. Well, if you're loving and tolerant, how can you be angry? Impossible. It's easy to, for me to say, and I shared that with Mike that I wrote up with, that it took me two years to learn to slow down and realize that I was retired. I got no place I have to be if I leave early. I got room for the traffic problem. I got room for a slow driver. I got a smile on my face. If I time it down to the minute and something goes wrong, guess what? The smile disappears. And so it's this learning that I learned here at the retreat. And another retreat, the first retreat I ever went to was at Manresa, a Jesuit retreat house. And I told the guy that got me to go, I say, if they say one word about going to church, I'm out of here. I'm taking your car. You'll have to find a way home. <laughs> and I meant it. And you know that 
uh, and it happened to be an alcoholic priest that was a retreat master. And he said, the only announcement he made, he says, for those who, of you who care to join, their services at 7.30 or 8.30 in the morning. That was the whole thing. It impressed me so much, I went and talked to him about a serious problem because I was raised Catholic and I wanted to get a divorce. I went to him and talked to him about it. I said, you think the church will ever recognize immaturity as a reason for an annulment. <laughs> he says, not in your lifetime, you know. And he says, but remember, there's many mansions in my heavens. So I was eased. But later, he gave a talk about lust. How many of you have ever sat in a meeting where somebody was describing to you what lust means. Because I suffered badly from it, real bad. Most of my time was thinking about it, not action, because I was bashful, but thinking about it. But he gave an example about lust. He says, this was back in the days when the many skirts first came in. And he says, you know, Don, he says, if you're standing on the corner on a beautiful March day, sun's out, weather's comfortable, and a good-looking woman in a miniskirt is crossing the street and steps up on the curb, and that miniskirt flashes up, rises up, and you see a flash of thigh, and you go, wow. He says, that's not lust. He said, but if you follow her in the direction you weren't going, <laughs> that's lust. You see, what I'm trying to share with you is the benefits of being part of the fellowship. And, and to this day and age, well, I'm going to transgress just shortly. In that pamphlet, it says, this gift you've been given is not to be used for self-interest. It's not to be used to get the gal to notice you. It's not to be used for financial gain. It's not to build your ego. You know, with 50 years of sobriety, I have no babies. I have people that call me sponsor, but I don't call them babies. And the reason is, is that some of the shit I share don't fit you. It just flat doesn't. It's my problem. It may not be yours at all. So why should I be telling you what to do? What I tell you is what I did. How did I get grow to a spiritual search? I did it because of the con in me. The con in me reads a portion of chapter 5. The ABCs at the end of the chapter 5 state, 
I'm alcoholic and my life is unmanageable. No human power could relieve me of my alcoholism. See, could and would if sought. Doesn't say found. So I set forth in reading a 24-hour day book that is not AA material anymore, but and it smacked of religion so bad that I threw it constantly, and I was reading it in the in the bathroom. And this, I'd say, this God shit, and off it would go. But as time went on, 12 years, I remember it was 12 years, and my life is in the shitter, romantically, financially, every way you could call it. But I wasn't drinking. Again, the fellowship. I wasn't drinking. And I wasn't being honest about my life being in the shitter. I had an image by then, and I wanted to protect that image. Boy, what a bunch of shit that is, you know. But I had it. And I was working on putting a property stake on the corner of the 40 acres. But it's, it's an immense rock. And I'm there with a pick bar. And I'm, suddenly I'm crying. The gnats are in my ears and up my nostrils and in my eyes. I'm crying. And I said some honest words. I said, I don't know why I don't have the balls to face life. I just don't have it. So I'm going to turn my life over to your care. And I friggin' don't have to like it. That rebellious nature of mine, I don't have to like it. I continue reading that book on a daily basis. Absolutely. For guidance. Not necessarily agreeing with the, the theology part of it but for guidance. Because in the fellowship, this is what you've allowed me. You have allowed me to have my own God, with the exception of a few of you Bible thumpers. You've allowed me to have my own God. You know, good orderly direction, constant thought of others, love and tolerance. You've allowed that. And you've taught me the tools in order to do that. And you've been in, uh, there's a handful, more than a handful that I know the story of, and your sobriety and whatnot, and you're an inspiration to me, an absolute inspiration. And if you read, and this is what it took for me, working with others, it'll tell you, you don't tell them what to do. You tell them what you did. Because like I said earlier, my story may not fit. There's a lot of people that may not be able to mix their wife a drink every night. It might be too dangerous for them. That's where honesty comes in. I know that I have some family gatherings at the ranch occasionally and they are allowed to bring alcohol. 
I got no problem with it. But usually there's some left over. And I put it away. And somehow, after some AA meetings up there, that alcohol disappeared. <laughs> Somebody got thirsty. <laughs> but the marvel, and, and I thank Pat and the people that put in all the effort for doing this, because this is one of the richest phases of my life, and I've talked to so many other men. My buddy from Montana died in November. He had a rare cancer. Only two in a million get that cancer of cancer victims. And he died quickly. And he spread the word of this retreat wherever he went in Montana because they don't have them. They have alcoholic gatherings, but not a study on the steps, you know. And you know I'm about running out. Oh, I got to share with you. I got a lady on oxygen, and I got her on a 100-foot tether. Because <laughs> she keeps saying, you know, if I could only go outside. So I go to the trouble of finding a very flexible 100-foot tether because it's 50 feet from the couch to the toilet. So I wanted to get outside, got a couch on the front porch and everything. She hasn't ever been outside and complains about that 100-foot tether. <laughs> and I think, it don't work. <laughs> you know. Also, I can tell you that along with people, I've said it time and time again what an inspiration Neil has been to me to go through the death of his wife and the child and whatnot. I've lost wives, but that's been fortunate. You know, and uh, and I've learned lessons. Maybe I better talk about learning lessons. You ever read in the book where it says God will do for you what you can't do for yourself? Well, years ago a guy say I turned my bills over to God and he turned them over to the sheriff. But a real critical one is the women used to say I had a mother issue. And I'd say, I use the word they hate. I'm not going to say it here. But I say that, you gays don't know what you're talking about. And uh, then a month or so later, the last time I did that, my mother's hitting, her, hitting me with her cane and I'm choking her. And the light went on. I got the message. I have mother issues that I haven't resolved 25 years sober. So I went and got professional help. And I'll tell you what happened. That son of a bitchin' doctor 
said I had to work on my inner child. I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't handle it. I'm saying to myself, don't worry, Donnie. I'll take care of you. You're not seven anymore. <laughs> you know. Now I have the one regret. When my mother had Alzheimer's, I was so angry at her, I wouldn't pay attention to the advice given to me. And there is a set of uh, suggestions for dealing with Alzheimer's. After, and there's a book called A 36-Hour Day, and it tells you how to deal with Alzheimer's. After she died, I did deal, I did read the book. And now I'm with a lady who's developing Alzheimer's, and I get the opportunity to shut up if I'm quick enough. But she'll say something that is just so far out, you know, and if I respond, and the advice is simply change the subject. It's not real complicated. But once again, I'm facing doing the little things. Pull that little tool out and saying, instead of saying, no, you never told me. And if you want to have a real laugh, we're both hard of hearing. So, so much of our conversation is, hey, what'd you say? And you say something, and you say, you never said that. And we go back and forth, and it gets real hairy at times. So now I have to work real hard in reading that suggested actions on that Alzheimer's plaque, you know. But I hope I haven't bored you, but I want you to know that constant thought of others is a growth. And never to perfection. That's the key, never to perfection. But if you've got a list of 20 friends that have birthdays and you call them on your birthday, <coughs> that means that there's 20 times you're thinking of somebody else. Unless you're thinking, well, if I don't call him the son of a bitch, you'll be hurt. Then you're thinking about yourself. <laughs> See? But the mind is such a fragile thing in so many ways. And particularly my emotions. I can get on a bull easier than I could ask a girl for a date. Much easier. I'm with the guys, you know. The last thing I'm going to say is that I learned how to love in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not so much the opposite sex, that's still a struggle. But amongst men who are honest, the love just springs forth like man. So many of you knew Cowboy Bill. Cowboy and Bill and I used to rodeo together. And we were riding in uh, Wyoming, no, Roundup, Montana. 
and I'm doing pull down for him and he's about ready to go out and when a cowboy's ready to go out, he nods and they open the gate. And what happened is he's down, he's got his head tucked because you watch the shoulders of the bull, so you got to be in position. And uh, I said to him, Bill, I love you. And he looked up at me and he said, I love you, Don. And then he went back down and nodded. And then we realized what we had said out loud in front of a whole bunch of cowboys. <laughs> this was years before Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> but you know, you kind of got to believe in a higher power of some sort. When we realized, he went and got his rope and bell and and was walking back to the chutes. Nobody seemed to have heard us. And there have been so many things. I, I could take up hours telling you about the many, many things that I found out about being honest, about being truthful, about being, I tried to be truthful and a woman asked me how I liked her hair and I said, it looks like shit. And I learned about truth without compassion is not honesty. So uh, I'm done. I want to thank you. And there will be anything else I should do? No.